0: Week six, get on the train. I like that title. Has nothing to do with words in the scripture for this particular chapter, but it kind of does. You'll get it. Get on the train. Well, after running from the threat of Jezebel and wanting to die and then going through some times of self-reflection and doubt, Elijah has come to a place where he's humbled himself to be used by God. And God has finally given him some more assignments. If you remember, Jezebel gave him a threat. And the scripture says that when he heard the threat, he saw a picture. He saw the threat. And when he saw what that could have been, who knows what what went through his mind when Jezebel threatened to kill him. Elijah just ran. He ran at what he saw in his mind could have been going on. At the top of his game, top of his ministry, dude calling down fire from heaven, rain from the heavens, outran chariots 14 and a half miles from the top of a mountaintop. At the thought of a, of, of a, of a mental picture that he saw, dude went under a broom tree and said, God, take my life. I thought it was kind of funny last week. We pointed out that the one prayer he said, God, end my life. This is one of the very few that never died on the earth. Talk about regretful prayers you got to answer for. (laughs) But Elisha finally humbled himself. God dealt with him. We all need those times just to get refocused. You ever have one of those times where you just doubt everything? Like, God, are you even working in my life? Are you sure you led me here? You ever have one of those moments? God told you to do this, and when you started doing it, it didn't feel like God. Sometimes you just got to get refocused. Because I guarantee you, if you're walking in step with God, you're going to doubt it many a time. I think that's why the Lord tells us so many times to take our thought captives. It's not that you're a bad believer if you have a doubt, it's that you've got to learn how to take the doubt thought captive and put it under the feet. I think sometimes we get a bad rap for that. Oh, well, you're doubting. You're, you don't have faith. No, just learn how to deal with the doubt. You're in flesh. You've got a mind. Your mind's going to think things, just like Elijah did. You've got to learn how to take the thought captive. You've got to learn how to put the thought under your feet. Sometimes you just got to get refocused. And when he got refocused, God said, all right, you done? Cool. i got some assignments for you. If you remember what the assignments are, I know all you do, but I'm going to give you a summary just in case you forgot. He said, go anoint Hazael to be king of Aram. Everyone say Aram. Aram. Anoint Jehu to be king of Israel. Everyone say Israel. And then he said, go anoint Elijah, Elisha as your successor, the next prophet in your place. And then God says, I know you think you're alone, Elijah. you thought that for years, but I have actually reserved and kept 7,000. Everyone just say that, 7,000 in Israel. Why? He said, these 7,000, this remnant of believers, if you will, they never bowed to Baal. They never kissed the altars of Baal. They never sold out. And I believe we are in a day unlike any other where the people of God will be revealed by who has bowed and who has not. Who will stand strong in God no matter what the cost. Even if the cost is your reputation, even if the cost is your family. It's not just a poem in Scripture when God says, are you willing to leave your family and lose this and lose that? Are you willing to lose anything to follow him? Because in following him, it will cost you things. It will cost you agreement in a lot of areas. And we're coming to a day where you're going to have to stand for one thing or the other, and who you stand in agreement with will be revealed by your actions. The days of, well, I just believe, it just ain't going to work. Your belief has got to be seen in how you live, what you embrace, what you reject. Amen? Well, God is about to lead Israel into a victory. Uh, and Israel, because of the 7,000... and plus a little more. We've got Elijah and all those people. But a remnant of people representing the whole, God didn't need the whole nation to believe in them. He just needed a representation. And he said, if I've got some, I'll take the whole thing into victory. I think that's something we need to remember. God's not waiting on every single person in the United States of America to believe in him. He's just looking for a representation who is sold out. He's looking for a representation on the whole earth. If I can just get a representative, a remnant of people to represent me for who I am, I'll redeem the whole thing. And he said, and the way I'm going to do it, I'm going to send my son to make you right now. You represent me by his power and his glory and his blood and his body. But are you representing him? In the same principle, he's like, I've got 7,000. I've got Elijah. I'm going to lead Israel into victory, even though the whole country has been given unto Baal worship. That's pretty awesome. I don't even know if I'd look at America and call it a Christian nation anymore because most of the Christians ain't Christians. Most churches you go into and you don't want to worship that God, if I can just be honest. Is that, is that okay, if I just be real? Some people ask me, like, why did you start a church? Because I didn't like any of them in the area. <laughs> I'm, I'm mildly kidding. At the time, seven years ago, seven years ago. I'm just kidding. A representation. Who's going to represent him with everything we've got? You want God to restore things? Give him a never-bowed-down representation of the whole. The Bible says something very interesting. He says the train of his robe fills the temple. What's this message called? Get on, the, get on the train. The train of his robe filled the temple. Let me explain to you what the train was. I know this is probably a horrible example, but how many of you have ever seen The Wizard of Oz? Only one? See, we got one that is bold enough. But there, there's a scene in it when the cowardly lion, they, they put that rug over him, and as he's walking up the steps, it's just dragging. That's called a, a train. Kings had trains. It's this long thing attached to a king where when he walked, it would just drag behind him, and a train's linked. The length of the garment was actually determined by how many victories the king had. See, when a battle was won, a defeated king's train would be cut off and it will be attached to the new king's train. So when you saw a king and his train, you saw not just the victories that was represented by the train, but when he cut off the king's garment that he just had victory over, that meant now I'm the king over your territory. I just took your authority and put it on under me. You are no longer the king of your area. I am. And we worship of God that says his train fills the temple. The train filling the temple is speaking of his numerous number upon number of victories of yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Yesterday, today, and forever. See, that's why we need to understand that we have victory in Jesus. We are coming into agreement with an unending train. And if we are the temple of God, and His train fills the temple, then that means that we as His body, as His temple, are full of victory. And at some point, you're either going to get on the train, or live in the lie. Is this okay? Yeah. <laughs> so don't doubt for a moment that you've got victory in Jesus. See, it's not just a cool phrase. His train is never ending. The proof of his victory is countless. There is no maybe. In him you have it. But you've got to get on, the, you've got to get in agreement with the if I am the temple of God. If he has made me his temple and he dwells in me, then that means his victory is so overwhelming there is no room for anything but. It fills it up. But I've got to get in line with it. So God tells Elijah, I've got a new king for, see if you remember, Aram, and I've got a new king for Israel. The only problem is that we've got other kings still existing. So we've got some battles to go through. We've got some wars to fight. We've got some territories and some authorities that have to be shifted around. Elijah, I need you to anoint these and get ready to get on the train of victory. This is making sense. So starting in verse 1 of 1 Kings chapter 20. About that time, King Ben-Hadad of Aram mobilized his army, supported by the chariots and horses of 32 allied kings. They went to besiege Samaria, the capital of Israel, launched attacks against it. Ben-Hadad sent messengers into the city to relay his message to King Ahab of Israel. This is what Ben-Hadad says. Your silver and gold are mine, IRS. And so are your wives and the best of your children. How messed up is that? He said, I don't want all your kids, just the best ones. Right? Some of y'all are thinking, would I have been passed up? <laughs> now, if, now I want y'all to think about King Ahab for a moment. They just came out of three and a half years of drought. Before that, he was ruthless. But now he's on this back and forth, no backbone because his gods were proven false. Elijah's God was proven real. He's still being manipulated by his wife, Jezebel. And he's at this place where you would think he would say, you ain't got my gold. You ain't going to have my silver. You ain't going to have my wife and sure enough, not going to have my kids. But that's not what he says. In verse 4, he says, all right. All right, my lord. Talk about a suck-up. King Ahab's looking at the enemy king and going, all right, my lord. Israel's king replied, all that I have is yours. Well, soon, Benadad's messengers returned again and said, this is what Benadad says. I've already demanded that you give me your silver, your gold, your wives, and your children, but this time tomorrow, I'm going to send my officials to search your palace and the homes of your officials, and they will take away everything you consider valuable. Isn't it strange how how similar this is sounding? To like, okay, never mind. No, I'm not going there. Ahab had a politically strong and militarily strong reign in Israel. But they weren't strong enough to withstand this kind of attack. Remember, King Benadab's coming with 32 allied armies. That's a pretty big attack. That's a big threat. Now remember, they're fresh out of a a three-and-a-half-year drought, so they're weak. Don't you just love how God works? You see, one thing we need to understand is God has the whole picture in mind. He might provide for you for today, but he knows exactly what that provision is, is setting up for you for tomorrow. I find it funny when people try to bless people and their first thing is, no. Can I, can, I, can I just help y'all out? Accept it. There's a reason God wants you to have it. There's a reason God is setting you up for success. I had to learn that the hard way. For years and years, I, had to, I said, no, 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 I don't, don't, don't bless me. No, no, no. And then all of a sudden, brain tumor. And my nose of you can't bless me turned into yes real quick. <laughs> I had to change my mindset. Don't think that provision today stands alone. He sees everything, and he knows exactly what you need for today and how it positions for you for tomorrow. You see, Ahab is weak. He's got no backbone, and he surrenders everything. Take my money. Take my wives. Take my kids. Of course he's weak. All he knows is a false god that's been defeated and a wife that's manipulative. Manipulative. Now, when he gave King ben all that, And then the king asked for more. King Ahab couldn't just say no. He had to get some backing for an answer. He already gave up everything. So he's like, you know, before I just give the other king everything, let me just ask some advice. He probably would have said sure. But let's be honest. He's weak, he's without, and he doesn't need to lose what little support he does have. So look what he does in verse 7. Is this okay so far? Okay. Ahab summoned all the elders of the land and said to them, look how this man is stirring up trouble. I, I, I like how King Ahab is kind of like backpedaling. I already agree with his demand. I give him my wives, my kids, my silver, my gold. He ain't, he ain't all about hiding kids, hiding my wife. He's taking them. <laughs> Don't give in any more demands, all the elders and the people advised. So Ahab told the messengers from Benadab, Say this to my lord, the king. I'll give you everything you ask for the first time, but I cannot accept this last demand of yours. So the messengers returned to Benadab with that response. You know, he probably should have sought the counsel of the elders the first time. He probably should have sought the counsel of elders like going to them about the testimony of Elijah's God instead of going to his wife, Jezebel. Probably would have seen a little bit of a different story. Well, this time he goes to the elders. The elders of Israel, they were seeing it right. They said, if you surrender all that, Israel will be lost. And at some point, Ahab, we have got to resist what the enemy is doing. At some point, Ahab, I know you want to get out of jail free card. I know you want to give up everything to make it an easy peace treaty. But at some point, we've got to stand for what's Israel's. They were under a king following the wrong God, but they were willing to discern rightly and they spoke up. At some point, we've got to resist the demands of the enemy. And at some point, the church, no matter the leader, has to stand up and at some point say no, 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 enough is enough right. at some point, no matter if it 's a just leader or unjust leader, the people of God have got to stand up and say Enough's enough 's enough, because y'all may accept defeat, but our god 's train fills the temple, and we are the temple of God, and if he has the victory. We're filled with it, and we're coming into agreement with the train, not your fear. At some point, we've got to resist what everyone else sees is okay. At some point, we have to stand for something. That's what they were doing. And verse 10, this is Benadab's response. He sent this message to Ahab. May the God strike me and even kill me if there remains even dust from Samaria to provide even a handful for each of my soldiers. Kind of funny that this is the exact same way Jezebel responded to Elijah. What did she say? May the God strike me dead if in 24 hours I don't kill you. You see, we love to talk about Jezebel's spirit, but the spirit was over their territory. It was influencing Jezebel. And it was influencing Benadab. I think we, if I can just get real, I think the reason why we don't fight Jezebel's spirit in the right way is because we limit the name to Jezebel. It's a spirit that manipulates over a territory and is looking for people to come into agreement. Jezebel came into agreement. This is a lesson on spiritual warfare. Y'all want to just... Can we talk about spiritual warfare? The way a spirit operates is it has authority in a region. Or it thinks it has authority in a region. It gets authority when the people surrender theirs. And what what a spirit does, it's, it's looking for someone who's willing to think like it. Who can I get to surrender everything? Who can I get to turn their back on their God and take on another God? Who can I get to surrender all their beliefs for any other beliefs I, I, oh 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 uh, they they want to feel loved so let me just whisper love and a false love and a manipulative love and a and, and, and a twisted love and get people to agree with what's not right that's how spiritual warfare works it's looking for agreement I'm going to get really really transparent, and just hear me out. If it offends you, that's God. But hear me out. Years ago, and I harped on this for a while. I don't want to harp on it, but it's just a good example. Years ago, when you thought of a region that represented homosexuality, you thought of mostly the California coast. Now it's everywhere. Because it got agreement In an area. And the people that had the agreement spread like wildfire. And then other people that had the agreement all over the rest of the world started agreeing. And the the area started expanding. Is this making sense? it's, It's just looking for agreement. A spirit got Jezebel to agree with it. A spirit got Benadab to agree with it. That's why the Bible was always talking about be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Take every thought captive. Most spiritual warfare, no, all spiritual warfare begins and can end with your mind in about three seconds. And you don't, you ain't got to go through hours of deliverance and freedom sessions if you would just get it in your mind and disagree with it. But no one teaches it anymore, so we've got to go through it because most of us have come into agreement and we don't even realize it because it likes to stay hidden in, in your past. Is so this speaking to someone? This one even in my notes. And there was a spirit in the land. It wasn't just a woman. And the spirit representing Satan had the region in agreement. Look at verse 11. The king of Israel sent back this answer. A warrior, this is Ahab, a warrior putting on his sword for battle shouldn't boast like a warrior who's already won. Ahab gets a little bit of backbone. He's like, "Don't, don't count your chickens before the egg. You ain't won nothing. Don't boast before you fight. The battle ain't gone yet. Verse 12 Ahab's reply reached Benadad and the other kings as they were drinking in their tents. Prepare to attack, Benadad commanded his officers. So they prepared to attack the city. Benadad was mad. <clears throat> they were drinking, boasting of a win before the battle, got mad, and said, Let's go get him. You see, Ahab finally made a right choice. Why? He wasn't seeking the counsel from Jezebel. He he was seeking the counsel from the elders of Israel. I wonder who do you seek counsel from? Because you don't know who's in agreement with territorial spirits. And the ones you should be seeking counsel from should be in agreement with the Holy Spirit... But some of you value your family's opinion over the pastor's and your family ain't got. (laughs) Isn't it funny whose opinions we value? We know the Bible says this, but we'll ask everyone who don't seek God. Well, she's my best friend who don't know God. You're seeking counsel from someone that probably has agreement in areas that they're not even aware of, and you just got wisdom from a spiritual authority in an unseen realm, and you wonder why your life is still on spirals. (laughs) Do you seek counsel from God-seekers, or do you ask anyone that you just consider you can trust? I'm just going to be honest with you. Trust is not a determining factor in who I seek counsel from. I've got people that I trust that I don't want their advice. I've got best friends who don't believe in God, maybe former best friends, that are more loyal than most church people, but I will never go to them for advice and the times I do, I leave thinking. What a waste of flipping time. <laughs> but that's what our American culture is. who do you get advice from? I love them. I trust them. I've known them. Ahab knew Jezebel a while. Why do we put that at the forefront of how we seek counsel from people? You see, getting on that train of victory, we've got to get counsel from people who are seeking God just like us. Not everyone is seeking, not everyone who says I'm a Christian is seeking God. Look at the fruit of their life. If their life is at a pause, why would you want their advice? If I can just speak to, we're really any age group in here, but people my age and younger. Stop asking advice from people your age. They don't know what they're talking about because they haven't lived it. You're stupid if you do it. I just spent anointing oil all over. I started to see increase when I started to ask advice from people who were much older than me that actually lived out the places that I'm going into. I don't need advice from another 35-year-old about how to get to where I want to go at 40. I need to talk to someone who's been there, done that, and has been successful. Maybe, is this just too practical? Okay. Where am I even at in the message? Okay, good. Good. Ahab didn't say Jezebel, no, no. He said, let me ask the elders this time. So look what happens after he asks the elders and the elders say, no, no, we gotta take a stand. We're representing Israel. We're we're gonna take a stand. Look what happens in verse 13. A certain prophet came to see King Ahab of Israel and told him, this is what the Lord says. Do you see all these enemy forces? Today I will hand them all over to you and then you'll know that I am the Lord. Ahab, who's rejected God every step Of the way. God just showed up through a prophet and said, Ahab, the one who rejected me, the one who worships Baal, I'm going to give them to you. And I'm going to show you that I'm God. Don't tell me that grace is not in the Old Testament. Whoever told you that, take away their degree and their qualifications and never ask them a dame thing ever again. Is this too. Okay. Ahab probably doesn't even realize He thought Elijah was the last prophet And here he is speaking to another one Y'all catch that? A prophet rose up and Ahab's like Hey what's up man? (laughs) Do you notice as we get into the story God is restoring little by little? At first it's I'm Elijah the last prophet Then another prophet shows up By the end of this chapter We'll see prophet after prophet after prophet Popping up everywhere See, the enemy wants people to think they're getting their way. Because even the enemy knows about the train. Can I I just blow some theology out the water really quick? The devil knows he ain't going to win. This ain't about letting me try to beat God. The dude has to go before him in the temple courts every day, he knows he's seen the train. He knows what's going to happen. All he's concerned about, he's not trying to fill hell with devil worshipers. He's trying to take glory away from God. Let let me just paint a clear picture. You don't get to go to hell and worship the devil. When you go to hell, you die. You will be done. I know none of y'all are. Maybe. Maybe. This is not a war about that. He See, see, we get this idea. Oh, the enemy's getting his way. The enemy's getting territory. Look what's happening in all these movements and look what's happening in our government. Do you realize that even demons fear and tremble at his name? You know why? Because they've seen the train. They know exactly what's going to happen. They understand that they have no chance when God shows up. That's why at his name they flee. Because they know the train. They know the victory. They know that they can't get on it. They know they're going to be run right over by the name of Jesus. Jezebel thought they were, he, she was getting her way. Oh, I'm going to take Yahweh out of the government. I'm going to take Yahweh out of the city. I'm going to take Yahweh out of the country. Ahab thought that he was getting bailed and, and, and he was taking over the Israel. But, and, but then a prophet shows up. Elijah shows up. And Elisha shows up. A hundred hidden prophets here. 7,000 never bowed before. We may think that the enemy is gaining ground. But let me assure you, it all ends with a victory on the glory train. Do you understand me? That is why the Bible's very clear we should not operate in fear. If you're operating fear, that means you just got off the train. The train. This is get on the train. Look at verse 14. So Ahab asked, how he gonna do it? And the prophet replied, Well, this is what the Lord says. The troops of the, pro- the provincial commanders will do it. In other words, commanders of the provinces. Well, should we attack first? Ahab asked. Yes, the prophet answered. So Ahab mustered the troops of the 232 provincial commanders, and then he called out the rest of the army, some 7,000 men. It's funny. God just told Ahab, I'm going to give you the victory, even though you've never given me an ounce of glory. And Ahab looked around at his army, and remember how big that army of Ben-Hadab was with 32 allies? He was like, how, how are you going to bring victory through this army? God says, well, i got a troop of commanders of provinces around you. I got you. And then Ahab asked, well, who's, who's going to attack first? In other words, Ahab said, Who's going to lead the battle? God says, you, you, You're going to do it. You're going to lead. You and your little military, you're going to lead. Isn't it funny that whenever God has work to be done, aren't those the same questions we asked? Well, God, how are you going to do it? Who are you going to do it through? And at some point, we've got to realize that the answer is you. But are you going to stand up? Are you going to stand for something? Are you going to say I am going to represent God even though it costs me everything and I am going to stand for what my word tells me to stand for? I'm not going to stand in fear. I'm going to stand and get on this train and show you that His train fills this temple. I'm not going to let my past define me because I stand in victory. I'm not going to let my present define me because I stand in victory. I'm not going to let the the threat of the tomorrow define me because I stand in victory. And what's funny is, in order to lead them, God called out not only the 232 provincial commanders, but from somewhere he gave Ahab 7,000 men, the same 7,000 that he kept hidden and preserved until it was time to be revealed. Do you realize Jezebel was trying to wipe them out? The ones Ahab's wife was trying to kill were the ones God was going to give Ahab for a victory. Isn't that crazy? I hear people sometimes saying things like, I wish I was born another time. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you are in your rebellion toward God. But I'm glad that God chose to put me in this time. Because if he chose to put you in the worst of the worst, that means there's something special about your destiny. There's something special about what he's called you for. But you're not going to see what it is unless you're on the train. Because you've got to let victory guide you. The courage to stand when everyone else wants to bow to bail, and kiss false altars and idols. And some maybe keep asking, well, why does Ahab get a victory? It isn't Ahab's victory, it's Israel's. And God told Elijah, I'm going to replace Ahab. But before the next king comes, I've got to prepare the ground. And we got to deal with the current one. Why does God keep letting evil people win? Maybe he's just preparing the ground. See, that's why even with that, don't fear. Look what's happening in our country. So what? Get on the train. Am am I talking to anyone? That should be our response from now on. Every Facebook post I want to see this week, when someone's complaining, just comment. Get on the train. I'm, I, get on the train and how we talk. I had a little bit of an Elijah moment this week. I talk a lot about, how come I know pastors like me? Why y'all laughing? <laughs> I felt like that was a laugh of agreement. <laughs> Sorry, I'm used to it. I was thinking about that and like, man, like, like I, don't, I can't find a lot of like pastors who want to just like befriend me and. I, I don't know why i'm the I'm the most lovable guy in the world. <laughs> and I was going through this time of like man i I wish I had this and I wish I had this and and then God kind of sat me down this week and said, But look at what you got and that's when this text started rolling in. Powerful message. thank you for, for being a great pastor. And God was like, why are you complaining with what you don't have?' when you should just look around at what you do have. And if I can just speak that over the house, we need to shift the comments from what we don't have to what we do have. There should not be one ounce of unthankfulness coming from the lips of anyone in this room. You've got breath in your lungs. You've got destiny. If you would spend more time getting on the train... And talking negative, you might see some of your destiny come into fruition. So in addition to get on the train, I'm going to start commenting, shut your mouth. (laughs) That's a (laughs) t-shirt. So look what happens when God starts to prepare the ground. Verse 16, about noontime, as Benadab and the 32 allied kings were still in their tents, drinking themselves into a stupor. In other words, they getting drunk. The troops of the provincial commanders marched out of the city as the first contingent, and as they approached Benadab, scouts reported to him: "Some troops are coming from Samaria. Take them alive." Benadab commanded, "Whether they've come for peace or for war, some versions say, if they come for peace, take them alive. If they come for war, take them alive." Most people think that this was actually a drunk quote. Because he should have said, if they came for peace, take them alive. If they came from war, kill them. So can you imagine Benadab being drunk? If they come for good, take them alive. If they come to kill us, take them alive. (laughs) See, the Bible's real, (laughs) y'all. Verse 19. But Ahaz's provincial commanders and the entire army had now come out to fight. Each Israelite soldier killed his Aramean opponent, and suddenly the entire Aramean army panicked and fled. The Israelites chased them, but King Benadab and a few of his charioteers escaped on horses. However, the king of Israel destroyed the other horses and chariots and slaughtered the Arameans. Let's start here. King Benadab has a sinful heart, right? It was first exposed when he wanted to attack Israel, and second, when he boasted of a win before the fight. Then, by the time Ahab gets there, that same sinful heart and prideful heart made him drink himself drunk. In other words, his own weak character defeated him. And so many people blame the devil and demons when 90% of the time the reason you got defeated is not the devil, it's you. The devil's only know your weak character is. You're vulnerable. And when he attacks, you buckle under because of weak character. Because you don't know how to stand. And we don't know how to stand because we make treaties with our weak character because we don't want to lose what's attached to the weak character. Because when you start to change what your weak character is, your friends start to change. And you don't find new friends quick. You go through seasons of alone. And that's a tough season to be. But look what had Elijah go through. He went through three and a half years of alone before God said, Here's Elisha and 7,000 more. Count the cost. So Ahab followed what God said through the prophet. God's commands, they want an unlikely victory. Why? They came into agreement with the train. They didn't see it, but they came into agreement with it. All right, God, we're gonna do exactly what you said, and they saw the victory. Look at verse 22. Afterward, the prophet said to King Ahab, get ready for another attack. Now, think think about this for a second. Miracle just happened. Has anyone ever... Gone through a time where you, it was like a spiritual attack for months and then it lifted and you were, you just felt like, oh, thank God. This is what they were going through. Three and a half years of drought, huge army comes and they got a miracle. They fought the army and had Benadab run away. And God didn't say throw a party. Through the prophet, God told Ahab, get ready for another attack. Begin making plans now. The king of Aram will come back next spring. Next year, he's coming back again. You see, the battle's been won, but the conflict wasn't over. He says, so get ready for another attack by making plans now. In other words, When you see victory, don't be naive to think all is well. Immediately after a victory, after war has been fought, after a battle has been, when you get through a battle in your life, when you overcome something against all odds, strengthen yourself and get ready for the next one that will come. An attack will come. And if you would start getting ready for that, you'd stop being so surprised when you get spiritually attacked. Lately in my life, when I go through a spiritual attack, people ask me, well, how you doing? I say, I'm not surprised, I'm fine, I got got it. This may sound spooky or kooky to some of you, I don't care at this point. I don't preach for opinion or applause. I, I was going through some spiritual attack within the last few months where I felt demons get in my bed and shake it. I was wide awake. Now, when I was 21, I I would go into nine-year-old girl posture, screaming at pitches that are not manly. But now, when I see it, I just get out of here. And they go, "Don't bother me a bit." It it, it really and that's not a proper thing. It's just, it don't bother me, because they're dead. They're nothing. They have no power unless I gave them the power of my fear. Right? Why why am I at that point? Because I'm not surprised if I'm called to preach a message others won't preach, then I'm going to go through an attack that others won't go through. Why should I get surprised? And if I can get real, if you're going to be attached to this house... You shouldn't get surprised. If we're truly in agreement going to a new place, the enemy does not want you to get the train. Doesn't want to give up authority. So it's going to try to taunt you and whisper to you and tell you you ain't good enough. And, to, and remind you of past things. It reminds you what you did five minutes ago when you try to come into the worship area and give praise to God. The enemy is going to try. Don't get surprised. but don't just sit there and wait either. The Bible says, you go and get ready for another attack. You strengthen yourself. you get in the word, you get in prayer. you surround yourself with believers. you strengthen your characters. Get ready. Why do you think the Bible says over and over there is a remnant? He said, get ready, find it, get connected to it, build a family, fall in love with each other. Why do you think he says, if you can't forgive your brother, I can't forgive you? Because there's such a weight of unity in the church and God can't do anything without us getting unified. That's his design. I'll prove it to you in Genesis 1. I need something to command everything I created. Let me create Adam. And then out of Adam, let me create Eve. God, by his very design, has to have his authority through man. Think about it. To deal with this, he found one, Elijah. He found 7,000 who never bowed. I believe part of all of this Stuff we're going through as a nation in the world is the church has got to stop making treaties with all of this gray area and unify and get on fire for who he is and give up anything else. Get on the flipping train. If you get on the train with God, you'll be ready. And an attack, it won't move you. I think that's an issue. That, can I just, this is to help. If you go through an attack and it moves you, it should reveal where you're at. You shouldn't be moved. And I'm not telling you that to put you down. I'm helping to reveal areas that you need to get stronger in. And if you don't know how to get stronger, don't be so prideful to just come to someone and say, help me get stronger. Don't wait for a small group program to get you stronger. Go find a a group of people that you can start building strength with. Some people have family that do it. Some people don't. But look at this one. (coughs) Verse 23. Is this okay? (coughs) Drink water. After their defeat, Benadad's officer said to him, you know, the Israelite gods are gods of the hills. That's why they won. (laughs) We can beat them easily on the plains. You see, while they're getting stronger, the enemy's planning his next attack. Only this time, replace the kings with field commanders. Recruit another army like the one you lost. Give us the same number of horses, chariots, men. We will fight against them on the plains. There's no doubt that we'll beat them. So King Benadad did, did as they suggested. Do you see the mindset, the spiritual climate and the bondage of the area? The idea of this is what the spirit had over the region. Give glory to God, just not Yahweh. They, they couldn't even give glory to Elijah's God. Oh, the reason they won because they worshiped the gods of the, the mountains and they fought us in the mountains and that's how they got favor. So we'll just fight them in the plains because they don't worship the gods of the plains. They worship the gods. of... Them. But you know that, that mindset is still current today. We try to come up with divine, reason, divine reasonings instead of going to the Bible to see who God is. We, we make up our own versions of divine influence. They're saying, well, their God is the God of the, the hills, not the plains, but we do it. We, god's powerful in the past, but not the present. God only has his elect and everyone else is doomed. Right? God's in this, but he can't be in that. When will we stand and say, God is God according to this word, and your opinions do not matter? Benadab's officers came to him with strategy based on their theology, based off their belief systems. This is the issue with the church. Strategy shouldn't come from theology, it should come from God. I believe theology is one of the most dangerous, divisive concepts of all time. Because people worship theology and they don't even know who God is. Because if you actually got to know God, multiple theologies would not be able to stand in his presence. It can't happen. He's only got one way. Yet Christianity has one way in 55 different ways. They're not all right. And it's not okay to say it's all right. At some point there has to be a stand to say this is the God that I know. This is the God that he tells me he is. And I don't care what your years of theology school said and what your degrees say or what your opinions say. If it's not according to this, get that out of my thinking. And I believe that's why we're in this place of the remnant rising up, of trying to unify, because we got a lot of people like who, like coming to a, a house like this, they're wanting to learn because they've had to unlearn everything they got. Yeah, right. Do you realize in the past seven years, we're getting to this point because we've had to unlearn so much? I don't question why is Relentless starting to grow a little more now. Because we're at a place for the people that understand where we're at to connect here. There had to be a lot of unlearning, even in me. In all of us. Still unlearning. And we'll be unlearning until the day he comes back. So... In verse 26, it says, the following spring he called up the Aramean army and marched out against Israel, this time at Aphek. Israel then mustered its army, set up supply lines, marched out for battle. But the Israelite army looked like two little flocks of goats in comparison to the vast Aramean forces that filled the countryside. In other words, Benadab had a lot of people. Y'all bored? Okay, good. Hungry? For word. Verse 28. Then the man of God went to the king of Israel and said, this is what the Lord says. The Arameans have said, the Lord is a God. The hills, not on the plain, so I will defeat this vast army for you. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Benadab had a huge army this time, and God says, your theology is not going to triumph over my power. And we need to understand that just because people think God can't do it doesn't mean that God can't do it. But... Where are the people who will get on the train of victory to overcome false theological mindsets with a witness of power flowing through a surrendered life? You want to know why we're not seeing his power flow through? Because our lives are not surrendered. And most people's lives are surrendered, unfortunately, are mostly surrendered to theology and not God. That's kissing an idol. what I'm I'm passionate about this we have got to get on the train well then in verse 29 the two armies camped opposite each other for seven days (laughs) and on the seventh day the battle began the Israelites killed 100,000 Aramean foot soldiers in one day the rest fled into the town of Aphek but the wall fell on them and killed another 27,000 Oops, so much for that strategy, hey there, Benadab. Benadab fled into the town and hid in the secret room. Talk about a miracle. God was working in him. You don't just kill 100,000 people when your army looks like two herds of goats compared to the massive, right? Verse 31, Benadab's officer said to him, Sir, <laughs> that must have been the most humbling sir of all time. We've heard that the kings of Israel are merciful. (laughs) Do y'all remember what they said a year ago? Ain't no shadow of a doubt that we're going to win this time. Sir, they're merciful. Let's humble ourselves by wearing burlap around our waist and putting ropes on our heads and surrender to the king of Israel. Perhaps he'll let us live. The dude was just threatening Ahab and Israel, now they're ready to surrender. But really and truthfully, I think this should be the same picture of how we come before God. Sincerity, humility, complete surrender for the one that has mercy to let us live. You know, some of us just need to stop fighting God and fight for him. I'm gonna say that again. Stop fighting God. Fight for him. Now, something about God. God was revealing himself again to Ahab. But God's got a different way of seeing people. You see, in 1 Samuel 16, 7, it says this about God. The Lord said to Samuel, Don't judge by appearance or height. I rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, the Lord looks at the heart. See, God looks at the heart of a man. And there's a lot of people who say they love God and even follow God at times. But some people follow God not to follow God, but just to get a reward or get a promise. They follow God with a selfish motive. Pharisees did it. Sadducees did it. Ahab just did it. Yeah, I'll do it. I'll go to church. I'll do the commands. I'll do all this. But in a moment, they'll trade God for their very own desires. God knew Ahab's heart. So look what Ahab does in 32. I'm getting to the end. They, so they put on the burlap and the ropes and they went to the king of Israel and they begged. Your servant Benadab says, please let me live. The king of Israel responded, is he still alive? He's my brother. Don't, no, this isn't a This Is Us episode. They weren't really brothers. He's saying like kinsmen. The men took this as a good sign and quickly picked up on his words. Yes, they said, your brother Benadab, go get him. The king of Israel told him. And when Benadab arrived, Ahab invited him into his chariot. Talk about drama. Well, Benadab told him, I'll give back the towns my father took from your father, and you may establish places of trade in Damascus, as my father did in Samaria. And then Ahab said, I will release you under these conditions. So they made a new treat- treaty, and Benadab was set free. You see, Ahab saw this as a chance. Oh, yeah, I'm going to make a tree- treaty with this guy. I'll have power. I'll have backing. Totally rejected the province of God. Ahab has no business making treaty with this enemy of Israel. Too many people make treaties out of God's alignment. You want to talk about warfare? Half of your warfare will be gone if you'll break peace treaties you should have never made with the enemy. That's a deep one. Break peace treaties that you've made with the enemy. There have been areas that you've compromised with and you're totally okay with it and it's called a peace treaty with an enemy. Stop compromising. Break the treaty. Okay. So when God sees the heart of Ahab, watch what happens in verse 35 and 36. Meanwhile, the Lord instructed one of the group of prophets... Isn't that funny? Elijah, prophet, prophet, group of prophets. They just, they starting to be revealed. The group of prophets said to one another, hit me. Let's read that again. <laughs> Meanwhile, the Lord instructed one of the group of prophets to say to, one another, to another man, hit me. But the man refused to hit the prophet. I can't wait for the day God tells me <laughs> to hit you. It's going to happen. <laughs> this, y'all need to submit to leadership. <laughs> Verse 36. And then the prophet told him, because you haven't obeyed the voice. Now think about it. The prophet goes up to a random dude and says, hit me. I ain't hitting you. Then the prophet told him, Because you've not obeyed the voice of the Lord, a lion will kill you as soon as you leave. (laughs) Y'all, the Bible is vicious. And when he had gone, a lion did attack and kill him. I thought Jesus said, Turn the other cheek. This dude turned the other cheek and got killed by a lion. (laughs) Don't be surprised when your dreams don't come true and your destiny is not fulfilled. Or death comes to your destiny when you walk in disobedience to a word. you got to get on the train of victory for your life. When you were redeemed, your destiny was won. You see, redemption is not just about heaven. It's about who you are and your purpose. When you were redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, your destiny was won. Getting on the train of victory is about walking out your purpose. Because when you get on the train of victory, you start to walk in steps with the confidence of God, and, and fear doesn't get you off of the path that's taking you into your divine purpose. Verse 37, the prophet turned another man, hit me, so we struck the prophet and wounded him. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> All right, I don't want no lion to kill me, right? So the prophet placed a bandage over his eye to disguise himself, and then waited beside the road for the king. (laughs) See, have y'all ever read this passage? (laughs) As the king passed by the prophet, as the king passed by the prophet, called out to him. Now remember, he's disguised. Every time a prophet has presented himself, and Ahab knew his prophet. This time he's disguised. Sir, I was in the thick of a battle. And suddenly a man brought me a prisoner. He said, guard this man. If for any reason he gets away, you'll either die or you'll pay a fine of 75 pounds of silver. But while I was busy doing something else, the prisoner disappeared. Well, it's your own fault, the king replied. You brought judgment on yourself. Ahab's gotten message after message from prophet after prophet, but this time it was different. How? How? This time Ahab didn't know it was a prophet. God knew that Ahab would not receive because he was wrapped up in his victory and his pride, and as far as he was concerned, he's got all the backing he needs from man and don't need God anymore. So he's back in his ways of, I don't need to listen to no flipping prophet. So the prophet tells a story that the reason he got hurt was that he was too busy doing what he wanted to do to take responsibility and guard the man. And because of that, the man escaped. You see, many steps of our destiny and opportunities are lost because we're too wrapped up in us. Because God will give you something to steward. God will give you something to take responsibility of. And you'll turn your back in a moment on it because you get wrapped up in you. That's why in Hebrews 12, 1-2 it says, we're surrounded by a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith. Strip off every weight that slows you down, especially sin that trips you up. Let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. You run with endurance by keeping your eyes on Jesus. But oftentimes, when God gives you something, we'll be focused on God for like a minute, and then we shift back to what we want to do. And a lot of times what you want to do is what your flesh wants to do or what the side of your soul wants to do that hasn't been redeemed that has nothing to do with your divine purpose and you're losing opportunities every day because you're wrapped up in yourself. See, in the story, he was supposed to guard the prisoner he was entrusted with. When you are unfaithful in what you're entrusted with, you'll be judged for it. What did the king say? You brought judgment to yourself. So keep your eyes and focus on God so that you will manage properly and get on the train of victory for the purpose that is you. God has a purpose for you, and the way you walk it out is to keep your eyes fixed on Him so you don't poorly manage your life. And there's so many people managing their life poorly, Because we're not fixated on, God, what would you have me do? It's, well, this is what I want, and this is my dreams, and I don't feel like this, and I don't feel like that. Get on the flipping train. That's not victorious. But you don't even know what the train looks like anymore. Verse 41. The prophet quickly pulled the bandage from his eyes. The king of Israel recognized him. See, immediately. Recognized him as one of the prophets. So we see that Ahab was very intentional. He didn't want to engage with him. The prophet said to him in verse 42, this is what the Lord says. Because you spared the man I said must be destroyed, now you must die in his place. And your people will die instead of his people. So the king of Israel went home to Samaria, angry and Solomon. Isn't it funny how God has tried to show himself over and over and over to Ahab? And Ahab not only rejected God, but even this time when God said you're going to die, you'll be replaced. Instead of being repentant, he was just angry. No matter what the enemy looks like, no matter what the leader looks like, let me assure you that God will have his way. God told Elijah, I've got a replacement for the king. And look at the process. I'm going to give Ahab every chance. But I know his heart. That's called unconditional love. I know the conditions of his heart, but I'm not going to let the conditions of his heart move me. question is, if you understand that God will have his way and God will have the victory, is when you get on that train. Is every step of my life I'm coming into agreement with, I know God's already got this. Why am I worried about it? Why am I tiptoeing around it? Why am I hesitant of walking forward? You see, it starts with repentance, but it continues with obedience. To see your life walk in the victory of a restored purpose, which was bought for you by the body and blood of Jesus. The world needs a remnant to stand up, stand for God, to see God have his way no matter what the cost. And when we start being transformed by renewing our mind and getting on the train, I believe we're going to see victories that we've only prayed about. Well, Kyle, you say that, but you don't know what's going on in my family. I don't care what's going on in your family. Get on the train. And when the enemy tells you see, you tell him right back, I know. You see, that's what happens when you see a little glimmer of light. All of a sudden, you see something that tends to take it all away. You see a big fail. And in that moment, it's so easy to come into agreement with the fail. But God says, no, 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 stay stay on the train. My, My train fills the temple of God. You are my temple. You are my people. You are filled with victory. You're not gonna fail in your job. You're not gonna fail in your purpose as long as you would focus on me. Don't let the voice of the enemy be louder than the voice of God. Don't let the threat of a fallen foe be louder than the promise of a risen king. Get on the train. The glory. It fills the temple. His victories are too numerous to even count. That's why we should wake up. You know, we talk about first fruits. We should wake up in the morning with a praise God, not a, oh, it's Monday, or a, oh. No, praise God. I've got assignments, and I'm getting on the train today. I'm going to have victory over every single one of them, and when the enemy tries to tell me I failed, I'm going to laugh in his face and say, no, no, no. I'm full of the train. See, it's all about winning it right here. Get on the train. It's a whole new meaning to victory in Jesus. I encourage each and every one of you as we leave here tonight, when you go home tonight, I, I would just say, uh, walk through your homes. Look at, look, put your hands on pictures of families that you're praying over and just speak it and get on the train. There, there is victory in this situation. And if it takes you the rest of your life to speak it, you're never going to let anything else move you from getting on that train. My God's got this. I'm never giving up on it. I know what happened today, but I'm on the train. I I know what happened five years ago, but I'm on the train. I I, I know that I I made this change in my life, and now it seems like I made the worst decision, but I'm on the train. The government's trying to do all this stuff, but I'm on the train. I am on the train. My God is going to have his way. And I want to be part of that. And I want to be the one, I want to be a part of a people to say, God, whatever you want, I am yours. No matter what the cost is. Have you truly counted the cost? Let's go there. No matter the cost. There's victory in Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. Can we give God praise tonight? Amen. Amen.